Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be together. Let's go ahead and bring those house lights up for us so we can see a little bit if we're taking some notes. Awesome. All right, well, y'all, it is good to be together this morning. Grateful for our worship team as they lead us and do a fantastic job doing that each week. And um, a lot of times I get up here and I'm like, hey, I'm really excited for the passage that God's given us this week. And um, I am excited anytime we get to open up God's word. But this week, I'll be honest, the passage that we're dealing with is going to be a difficult one. So last week, we took down the first half of Genesis 18, where Abraham hosts three strangers for dinner that turn out to be God and two angels. All right? At dinner, God reiterates the promise that Sarah is going to give birth to a son within the year. Sarah overhears this, but she's dominated by her unbelief, right? She hears something that's true, but she believes her doubts more than she believes the promises of God. And what we were challenged with, like Sarah, is to focus on God's promises instead of our limitations, by the question that God asked, hey, is there anything too hard for the Lord? So this week, as we pick up where we left off in Genesis 18, the tone is going to be different. Because if I'm honest, the passage that we're going to deal with today is ugly and it's dark. This passage is going to be heavy because it highlights the depths of the sinfulness of humanity. And as we see that, what we're also going to see is destruction and death that comes as a result of that sin. And so I think this passage is going to be challenging for us in a little bit of a different way. I think there's going to be some things that are challenging for us emotionally. I think there's going to be challenging for us because we're going to have to do um, probably a different kind of thinking than we typically do um, because it asks some really big questions as we get into it. And so I would say that it's, it's been a, a week that as I've been preparing, it's been heavy. But what I want to make sure we, we know is that if you hang in, if you hang in, we do get to see God's mercy, kindness, and grace on display. And one of the things I've recognized is that when we open up the Bible and we see passages that deal with God's wrath or God's judgment, it is often true that God's grace and mercy are alongside of it. We just can choose to focus on things we don't like. And so what I'd ask us to do this morning is to be open-handed and open-hearted to what God has to say to us. And I think we're going to get to leave here today with hope in a God who is full of mercy and grace towards people who don't deserve it. All right, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 18, verses six, verse 16 says the men, these, these strangers who were with Abraham, got up from their meal and looked toward Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way, right? So he's like, hey, let me, let me help make sure you're going in the right direction. And God says this, he says, should I hide my plan from Abraham? The Lord asked, for Abraham will, be, will certainly become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by promising to obey the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. All right, so what's going on here is God asks a rhetorical question. 
He's like, hey, there is going to be destruction that comes from Sodom. Should I let Abraham know in advance what's going to happen? And the answer, he answers with a yes, because what we're going to see is there's going to be a dialogue between them. And here's what's important. The reason that he chooses not to hide his plan from Abraham, notice, it's because Abraham has a responsibility for the people he currently leads and their family. He says, hey, Abraham's family is going to become my people, and I want my people to be known for doing, for living righteously and acting with justice. And so he, he, even though he's made promises to Abraham and his descendants, God realizes he cannot fully bless, he cannot fully bless his people if they do not live obediently to him. So what he's saying is, I want to give Abraham a sneak peek into what's going on so that he feels the weight and responsibility of of what could happen to his people if he does not lead them the way I want them to. Ultimately, what this gets down to is this idea of, Abraham, are you and your family living a life that I can bless? Because God wants to bless them. God wants to pour out his promises on them. And he's saying, hey, I cannot bless you if you live a life full of sin. And so just this week, I had a meeting with with my counselor and he asked me this question. We were talking about the idea of limits. And I looked at him and I said, hey, I'll be honest. I do not like the idea that I have limits. I do not want to embrace the idea that God created me as a human being with limits and I want to overwork because ultimately I want to prove to myself that I can work harder than everybody else. And he looked at me and he said, well, then I guess you're okay with dishonoring God, right? Come on, man, you can't ask me that question. Right, ultimately that was the question he was asking me. He said, hey, do you want to live your life in a way that God can bless Or are you going to overwork yourself trying to honor yourself as opposed to honoring me? Right. So there's a question for us. Are we living a life that God can bless? And are we taking things off the table by how we choose not to obey him? Ultimately, that is the question that God is asking Abraham here. And before before we go, hey, hold on. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem kind. If we pay attention to it, we're going to see God's kindness all along the way. First, in how he interacts with Abraham. He actually condescends himself in how he interacts with Abraham. Look at what it says in verse 20. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not... I want to know. All right, so, so notice what's going on here. God in this moment is acting like he doesn't have all the information. And he looks at Abraham and he goes, okay, Abraham, here's what I'll do. I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna investigate. And if it's not like I presume it to be, then I won't act that way. But if I take the action I say I'm gonna take, it's because I've done my due diligence. Right, here's the thing, y'all. Obviously, God does not need to do this, right? He's proven, he proved at the beginning of chapter 18 that he knew the unspoken belief and doubt that was in Sarah's heart, right? So God knows all things. 
He does not need to go down to Sodom to figure out what's there. But he says, Abraham, for your sake, and I think for our sake, he condescends himself and he goes. Right? So he basically sends his angels like undercover agents, if you will, to go see what's down there. And so as the angels make their way to Sodom, Abraham and God continue their conversation. And I think if we pay attention, we can see that Abraham has some of the same questions and assumptions that we do. Look at verse 22. It says, the other men, the angels, turned and headed toward Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You wouldn't be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. You would be treating them exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Right, so, so what do you think Abraham is actually concerned with? Or who do you think Abraham is actually concerned with in this question? He's concerned about Lot. He's asking these questions because he knows that his nephew and his nephew's family is living in Sodom. And God says, hey, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And what we see here is Abraham's heart is to save Lot. And along the way, I think he makes some assumptions and asks some questions that we do, right? The first is that he says, hey, there's righteous people in the city that don't deserve destruction, which I think begs the question, who defines righteousness? Is it you and I? Is it Abraham? Or is it God? Because you and I don't have the same definition of righteousness as God does, right? The definition of righteousness is God himself. And you and I fall short of that standard, right? Look at what Romans 3, 10 through 12 and verse 23 say. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And so here's, here's the challenge for us, is that I think that we would acknowledge that there are other people who might live better lives than we do. But we're quick to point out that there are people who live lives worse than we do, right? And so when you and I get to define where's the line of righteousness, well, that line tends to move day by day, week by week. Right, so if we're the ones who are deciding who's righteous, that line's going to consistently keep moving. But when God sets the definition, he says, hey, actually, no one is righteous. All of us, all human beings have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Then the truth is that there's actually nobody in Sodom who deserves to be spared. Right, and here's, here's what we know because we live in light of the New Testament, is that that same principle applies to us. Is that there's actually none of us 
who are righteous, none of us who deserve God's grace, and any of us who are made right and are now righteous with God, it is only because of his grace. Right? We, we, we don't like the idea that there would be punishment when we fall short of the standard because if we're honest, we know we've fallen short. So Abraham's saying, hey, God, come on, there's got to be some people there. There's good people and you're not, gonna, you're not just going to allow bad things to happen to good people in the city. But what we're going to see is that Lot is there. Lot has decided he's going to be there. And honestly, as we, if, if he were to get what he deserved, it would have been to be there when destruction comes. Right, the next thing that I think we see Abraham asking about is, hey, couldn't God be good if he's a God who judges? Right? So is it I, I, like there's something in our culture that wants to say it's not right or good to judge people, right? The phrase only God can judge me, I think is the most misunderstood and stupidly said phrases in the world. Because if God was the one who actually judged us, we'd be far worse than if you and I judged one another, right? But right, we have this idea that judgment is bad. Judgment is wrong. And I think there's a little bit of that when Abraham says, hey, hey, shouldn't the the judge of all the earth, do what's right. Hey, hey, are you really going to judge them? Are you really going to hold them accountable to what you've said? And this is just one of those things that we, when we think about judgment, we want people to treat us differently than we treat them, right? Like if we're honest, there's a part of us that actually kind of likes to judge people from afar. If we're honest, we might not be able to feel like we're ready to be honest this morning, but if we're honest, there are certain people that if you see them for a de- from a distance, dressed a certain way, there's a part of you that enjoys judging them. You, we just don't want them to judge us in return, right? So I heard this week there's a YouTube influencer who apparently took some heat because he in a podcast said, I really enjoy when I see somebody who has like pink hair or red hair and green hair. He's like, it makes it really easy for me because I know that they're a crazy person and I don't have to go talk to them. Now, as you can imagine, he took some heat from crazy people with pink hair on the internet, right? But we're, we're, we, we all think it. We don't, we don't want to say it out loud on a podcast that gets listened to by a lot of people. But the problem is, is that we, again, want to draw the line of what should and should not be judged. But here's, here's what I want to make sure we recognize, because it's important. Is that the reason why there's actually something internal in us that judges is because God has actually hardwired us as image bearers of him to judge because God is the ultimate judge and he does it with justice and perfection every time, right? It's the reason why when you see somebody, when you see somebody having harm done to them, there's something that wells up inside of you that you can't control, right? Because we know deep down when that happens, that that's wrong and that action needs to be taken to make it right. It's because God put it in you. So I'll never forget one of the clearest pictures I had of this. At our last church, I had a guy named Jake who worked for me. He was responsible for middle school. And Jake, is a, he was, he's a huge guy, right? Played football. He's a big guy, but he's, he's a teddy bear. So he's real kind. He's real calm. He's very opposite of me in a lot of ways. And I loved working with him. And there was this one Sunday night at youth group where Jake comes into the room, just, 
in a tizzy and I can tell something is wrong. And I'm like, hey man, hey, like talk to, he's like out of breath. He's, he's like, he's agitated. I'm like, hey, calm down. Tell me what's going on. And what had happened is that a high school student had bullied a middle school student to the point where middle schooler had locked himself in the bathroom, called dad, got picking up and left before we knew what had happened. And so because he saw something wrong happen to somebody that he was responsible for and cared about, I mean, dude was, I mean, he was just ready. I mean, I thought he was going to fight me just because the high school student technically fell under like my responsibility. I was like, all right, calm, Jake, calm down. We're going to make this right. It's fine. Here's the thing. The, the anger that actually welled up in Jake was a godly response, a godly kind of anger that, that it reflects God's character towards wrong being done to people. And what we see is that the same thing is true is happening in Sodom. It says that because of their sin, there was an outcry that was reaching the ears of the Lord. And because our God is good, he can't sit back and not make things that are wrong. He can't just not make things right. And so, right, these are just some of the questions. I cut like three of them that I think we see here that Abraham has. And we know that he has these tensions and questions because he, he like negotiates with God. So he says like, hey, so will you spare him for, for 50? And God's like, yeah. He's like, but what about 45, 40? He gets all the way down to 10. And what's interesting is at no point does God say, yep, I'll do it for 10. And there's 10 there, so they're good. We get all the way down to 10 and nothing in God's plan has changed because there's no one there that's righteous. And so the angels make it to Sodom and Lot, it says, is sitting at the city gate, which is significant because when you think about the city gate, Think about city hall. Think about a place where business and politics take place. And Lot is sitting there in a position of authority and prominence, right? He is not, he's not just living in the suburbs of Sodom. He is holding court at city hall. And when he, he meets the angels, he doesn't know they're angels still. He goes, hey, can you, you want to stay, you want to stay at my house? And they're like, no, we're, we're going to just sleep right here in the town square and he's like, no, you, you really need to come stay with me. And they agree to it. But what happens next is difficult. And here's what's interesting. What, what comes next in the text is shocking to us. It's not shocking to God. He knew what was going to happen. Look at what it says in verse 4. But before they retired for the night, before they went to sleep, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone for they are guests and are under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged towards Lot to break down the door. But the angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house and bolted the door 
Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Can we acknowledge that this is hard to read? And what this illustrates to us is the severity of Sodom's sin. There is is layers of sin here. I want to make sure we're clear. There is not one specific sin listed as the reason for Sodom's destruction. It's the severity of that sin that got God's attention. The NLT says their sin is flagrant. Other translations say it's grave or severe. And so let's just make sure we, to to put it clearly, the destruction of Sodom isn't about a specific sin, but the severity of their sin. And the reason I want to be clear with this is I have seen people take this passage and make it only about homosexuality. To make this only about homosexuality would be an error. To say nothing about homosexuality as sin would also be an error, right? It's clear that what they want to do with men is a sin, right? It illustrates just how bad things are. But, but can, we, can we admit that it is no better if they had asked for his daughters versus these men? Right? The degree of their sin is, is, is deep. And it shows just how sinful things are, are, are in Sodom that in some way Lot, because he's lived there, thinks that a plausible solution is to offer his daughters as a response. So, so let's be clear. Homosexuality is a sin. But to make what happens to Sodom only about homosexuality is not I think what this passage is highlighting. It's showing the depths of just how sinful they are. And it's interesting that Sodom, in a world that is sinful, Sodom had a reputation for being extra sinful. It's like Vegas, right? Think about this, right? We live in in a country that is full of sin, right? You don't have to go very far to see sin. And yet there is a city in our country that is known as what? Right? right, there are things that happen there that others of us who are sinful go, oh, I mean, I know it's bad here, but like there, like it's real bad there, right? That is the reputation that Sodom had. And that's why it says the outcry against Sodom was great. There were, the sin was so bad that people were being harmed by the sin. And I think that what we see almost happen to these angels is normal. There's a reason that Lot insists, hey, please, please don't spend the night in public. I think he knows. I think he knows what was going to happen to them because it's not the first time that this has happened. And so all sin is destructive. But what we see is that the sin in Sodom was destructive to just the fullest degree. And so I think the question that, that I have is, it's not a matter of if God is going to move and if God is going to act, it's when. 
God, how long are you going to let this happen? God, if you knew that there were people this sinful, sinning in ways that was harmful to other people, why would you let it go so long? Why would he sit back and let people keep being harmed by sin? I wanna make sure that we don't miss this. God waited because God is patient. And God was patient because he wanted to extend mercy. I don't miss that. God wants to extend mercy and grace to anyone who will call on him, confess their sin, and repent and towards, turn towards him. And I think what we can do is in a passage that highlights judgment, we can miss God's patience. But make no mistake, God is patient. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. And so as I've thought about this passage, I, I think that if, if I got to be God, I would not be patient. And the reason that God gets to be God and not us is that God cares more about human beings' souls than we do. And he has a greater understanding than you and I do. And so eventually, though, God says enough. He says no more to the severity of their sin. And so God is patient. But what we have to recognize that this passage shows us is that God's patience has an expiration date. God's patience has an expiration date. And so what it says happens, you can leave, you can leave that, that up, Lauren. You don't need to go on to these, these verses, but verse 24 and 25, it says, then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. Right, God was patient, but eventually... He, it was time for him to act. And the truth is, it is hard. It is not easy to read about or talk about God's justice and judgment. And I recognize it is hard for us to understand how God can still be good if he initiates destruction and death. But I think that if we'll, if we'll take a moment and think about it, I do think that God's punishment for sin, though it's severe, is an indicator of his goodness. Because if God will sit back and watch evil harm people and do nothing about it, we would not consider him good. Right? Because as, as parents, we know if, if, if something were to happen to our kid and we had a chance to step in and act Right, like, like, like if, if Autumn is playing in the front yard and there's a car coming by and she's moving towards the road and you don't do anything to act, I'm gonna say, hey, you are not good. You are not good parents and you are not good people. And so God has to move. He cannot sit back and watch evil happen and do nothing. And, and he, here's just the thing where he is God and we are not, is that there are things that he does, actions that he takes that he can do and remain good that we can't. And that's where there's mystery that I could have an hour and a half and I wouldn't be able to make a compelling case 
to make, make everyone believe that, but there are things that God gets to do, like actually bring judgment, and he stays good where if you and I brought those things to people in revenge and payback, we would not be good. And so because God is good, he must bring righteous judgment. Right? We, we would not want to worship a God who would allow bad things to happen and do nothing to make wrong right. Right? Again, we have this like internal thing that desires things to be made right. It's why we love revenge. So I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a whole lot of revenge songs out there. And one of the things you need to know about my wife is that her favorite type of song is a revenge song. It does not matter. It doesn't matter the genre. Pretty much every Taylor Swift album has one. But it's not even limited to Taylor Swift. The reason, like, there's something in us that likes revenge ultimately because, again, it's something on how we image God making wrong right. But here's the thing. When you and I get retribution and get revenge, we do not do it in a way that is good, godly, or righteous. All we want to do is inflict harm on people who has hurt us. But God can remain good while making wrong right. And it's important for us to know that because God is good, he does not enjoy inflicting harm on any of his creation. Right, so 2 Peter 3.9 says, hey, I don't want to destroy anybody. Ezekiel 33.11 says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. Right, so I think one of the misconceptions we have about God is God is just sitting and waiting, watching, hoping you're going to make a mistake so that he can punish you for it. That is not the heart of God. That is not the heart of the God of the Bible. It is something he has to do because he is good and because he is right. But notice, he does not enjoy it. And that's why Romans 12 tells us that revenge is God's, not ours, because when we do it, we enjoy it. When somebody hurts me, I love thinking about ways that I could get them back. Right? That is a very clear indicator of how I am not good and I'm not God. And so here, here's the challenge, is that I think most of us recognize that when bad things happen, punishment needs to come. But where the rubber meets the road and where there's a lot of tension is that we think, hey, I, I know there needs to be punishment, but isn't the whole like death, destruction, separation from God forever, isn't that like a, isn't that an overreaction? Well, like we might not say that out loud. Some people would say that out loud. But I think it's a legitimate question because if Kaylee were to harm me and my response for revenge were to, was to do something like that to Kaylee, that would be an overreaction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so here's, here's the hard thing is that if we doubt the degree of God's judgment, then ultimately we are underestimating the degree of our sin. And here's why. Our sin ultimately always costs a life. 
In the Old Testament, it's gonna cost the life of an animal. But one day, right, God sends his son and it costs God the death and the life of his son. Our sin is that costly. And if our sin costs God the life of his son, then to think that God would not hold us to the same standard is to underestimate the degree of our sin. I know that um, it's not it's not fun. It's not fun to look at passages that deal with difficult things like this because it makes us ask questions about people we care about. It makes us ask questions about people we know and love who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Right, the reason that the tension is palpable is for what, probably one of two reasons. One, either you're not sure if you are right in your relationship with God and you wonder what this means for you or someone that you know and love isn't right, isn't right in their relationship with God and you wonder about what it means for them. And I think that as I was thinking about this passage and preparing for this week, all I, all I could think about is that this was going to be a passage that we walked out of here feeling low and down and, and dark because of the, the degree of sin that we see. And as I was studying and spending time, what shocked me wasn't what happens with the men and the angels, mainly because I knew it was coming and really didn't want to preach on it. What shocked me is just how much of God's mercy and grace is on display towards Lot. And so I recognize it is heavy, but I don't want us to miss God's grace because if we miss God's grace in this passage, then we have missed the point. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read 10 verses, and it's a lot of verses. And I know that I've not only been talking for a little bit, we've been dealing with some difficult topics. So I'm going to ask you to do is sit up, right? I'm going to ask you to lean in because if we miss the mercy and the hope here, then we have missed the point of being together this morning. All right, so look at what it says. Verse 12, this is after the angels pull Lot back into the house. It says this, Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? Get them out of this place, your sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we are about to destroy the city completely. The outcry against this place is so great that it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angel seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city for the Lord was merciful. If, you, if you're reading in your physical Bible, I would encourage you to underline that. For the Lord was merciful 
When they were safely outside of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Right, if I'm lot, I'm like, cool, got it, I'm going. Nope. Oh no, my Lord, Lot begged, you have been so gracious to me and saved my life and shown me such great kindness. But I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up with me there and I would soon die. See, there's a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said, I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. That explains why this village was known as Zoar, which means little place. All right, so as I read these verses, there was one word that came to my mind. It's not a part of my normal vocabulary, okay? But the word that I kept thinking about as I read these verses was confounded. Right? Confounded, to confound is to perplex or amaze. Again, it's not a normal part of my vocabulary, but I am amazed by two things. First, Lot's response. Are you kidding me? He clearly thinks the angels are telling the truth because he goes to his daughter's fiancés and he's like, hey guys, but, and let's, let's acknowledge, it says that the night before, every man in the city was a part of that crowd. Very good chance they were a part of that team. Hey guys, this whole place is gonna get destroyed. Or it says he did that with urgency. And then he has to get drug out by the hand out of the city. Are you serious? He acknowledges God's been merciful. God's been gracious. God's been kind. And then he argues about where he's supposed to go. Are you serious? It'd be like me drowning in the ocean. A lifeguard comes to get me. I'll be like, yeah, I know you're at life, life, lifeguard station 18, but 20 is really more my flavor. Right? This is ridiculous. And, and I do want to acknowledge the reason that Lot's response is ridiculous is that it is a response of sin. He's gotten so used to living in the city, he does not want to go live in the country. And Sodom was not just where he lived, Sodom was what he wanted, right? Sodom wasn't just like what, where he resided, Sodom had taken up residence in his heart. And it was the thing that he desired most, to live in a big, beautiful, prominent place. And so the reason that his response is stupid is because sin makes us stupid. And in spite of his stupidity, God drags him out by the hand. And so the second thing that amazes me or confounds me is God's kindness, mercy, and grace. And here's the thing. God's kindness, mercy, and grace should amaze us. If we're honest about our sin, the level of our sin, the severity of our sin, and what that means for our relationship with God, anytime God is gracious to us, it should amaze us. That's why we sing a song called, we don't, we don't say like average grace. We don't sing ordinary grace. No, the song we sing is amazing grace. God's mercy is unthinkable. His grace is scandalous. God's mercy literally pulls Lot to safety and won't take no for an answer. So if we miss that God is merciful and gracious in this passage, then we will miss the point. And this, this idea of amazing grace is true for us as Christians as much as it is 
for Lot in this moment. Right? Our sins might look different than that of, of Lot or that of Sodom, but our sins are just as severe and just as deserving of God's judgment, punishment, and death. And just like God grabbed them by the hand and dragged them to safety, the same thing is true for you and I if we've experienced God's grace through a relationship with Jesus. And so I, <laughs> I think as we, as we look at this passage, I think we have to ask the question, okay, so what? Right, there's, there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of awkward, there's God's grace. What do we do with what we've heard today? I would say that the, the most simple answer I can give is that we need to live in light of the return of Jesus, the final judgment, and eternity. We need to live like those things are true and they are in our future. Jesus is going to come back one day. All of us are gonna stand before God one day and we will live for eternity either with God or without him. And so for some of us, that means recognizing that if Jesus came back, you would not be on the right side of God's final judgment. If you've never confessed your sin, repented and turned to God and surrendered your life to him, then the truth is, is that you don't have a right relationship with him. And what we see happen to Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the judgment coming to those who die apart from Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that you do not have to. The death and destruction that your sin deserves was paid for on the cross by the Son of God. And you can choose to let Jesus pay the price of your sin. And my encouragement would be, don't delay. Jesus says that when he will returns, it will be like a thief in the night, meaning you won't know and you won't be prepared. Don't put it off. Let today be the day of salvation. And what we've seen in this passage is that God's wrath and God's judgment is real, but his grace is just as real and just as sufficient for you today. And then if you're a Christian, what it means to live in light of the return of Jesus in eternity. Let me ask you this question. If you knew Jesus was returning in 2024, how would you live now? If you knew, if you knew that Jesus was coming back soon, how would you live? How would you spend your time? What would matter most to you? What urgency would you have about sharing the good news with other people? And whatever comes to your mind, I would encourage you, that's probably how we should live in light of his coming return. So here's what I know. This morning has been a lot. It's been a lot of information. It's been a lot of tension. And so here's what I want us to do. In a moment, we're gonna have a chance to respond by singing. But before we do that, I wanna give, give us a moment just to reflect maybe process, maybe jot some things down before we do that.